Dense Friends, and welcome to, believe it or not, episode 30 what? of the Dense Edit podcast. I know. It's crazy. Time is I'm fake. Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoin. And I'm Cadence Sneedon. We are editors at Dense Media, and actually, I'm going to pause for a moment here and welcome Lydia Murray, too, because we're going to congratulate one of our own right now who does not know she's about to be congratulated <laughs> because I oh my God. sneakily left it out of her script. <laughs> Um, Courtney just won an Eddie Award, which is amazing. Ridiculous. For her, it's for her dance magazine essay about the Prince George ballet scandal. The title is Good Morning America Thinks It's Totally Acceptable to Laugh at a Six-Year-Old for Taking Ballet. We will absolutely be linking to it in our episode description. It's a rant of the finest order. And if you listen to this podcast at all, you know this girl can rant. So congrats, Courtney. The right people winning in 2020, rare but happy. <laughs> when I started working here last October, um, I had no idea that Courtney was the one who like spearheaded that whole movement and she was just so chill about it. And I was like, wow, that's, wow, <laughs> like, that's amazing. <laughs> I think this uh, definitely went in the category of good news. I fully was not expecting. <laughs> um, so Thanks, you guys. I think the coolest thing about writing that article was uh, getting to give voice to something that I think the dance world collectively was feeling in the aftermath of that horrific news segment and getting to see it kind of help people have language in order to impact actual change, which it did seem to do. Um, So... Yeah, thanks, Folio, and thanks, Dance Media. I don't know. This is weird and awkward. (laughs) All right. Well, huge congrats to you, Courtney. And um, just in case you're not familiar with the Eddie and Ozzy Awards, they honor excellence in publishing, Eddie's for content, Ozzy's for design. And we should shout out Dance Media's other Eddie and Ozzy successes, too, because Dance Magazine also won an Eddie for its ongoing COVID-19 coverage. And then there were three Aussie honorable mentions, one for Point Magazine's fall 2019 print issue, and then both Dance Magazine and Dance Spirit for their website redesigns. So yeah, much needed, actually good news. Lydia, thank you for, for chiming in. All right, bye, everyone. Have a good episode. <laughs> thank bye, you, Lydia. Lydia. So in today's episode, we will be joining the enormous choir of voices paying tribute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and celebrating her passionate commitment to not just the law, but also the performing arts. We'll be discussing a grim study about the comeback of live performance and how it makes a very compelling case for the proposed Save Our Stages Act. We'll be getting into why mixed repertory dance companies are still relying on ballet for company class and why that's a problem. And we'll be hearing a message from Dr. Melissa Blanco Borelli, who is the president of the Dance Studies Association. And they've been doing such excellent work to make the academic dance world and the dance world as a whole more equitable and inclusive. So we're excited for you guys to hear from her. Um, before we really dive in, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at dance underscore edit and Instagram at the.dance.edit. And to comment and add us, too. We want this to be a a two-way conversation so we can hear what you're thinking about. Maybe we're all screaming into the void about the same things. Let's scream together. So now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown. Courtney, Eddie Award winner, want to kick us off? Not going to get used to that one anytime soon. 
So the dance department at the University of Michigan instituted a two-week building shutdown after more than 10% of the department went into quarantine. An email reportedly sent by the department chair expressed frustration at the protocols and communications from the university's Department of Environment, Health, and Safety, and said that the department was acting to avoid contributing to a further increase in cases. Um, this weekend, Al Blackstone won the Emmy Award for Best Choreography for his work on the last season of So You Think You Can Dance. And while it marks the first Emmy Award for Blackstone, it certainly isn't the first for So You Think. This was the show's 12th Emmy win. That's beyond a record, by the way. I think the second, the runner-up is Dancing with the Stars with three, if I remember correctly. So congrats all around. Uh, recipients of this year's Doris Duke Artist Awards have been announced. Now, the awards come with a $275,000 grant, the majority of which is unrestricted, which is huge. Even bigger, this year half of them went to dance artists. So, heartfelt congratulations to Anna Maria Alvarez, Sean Dorsey, Rennie Harris, and Pam Tanowitz. Uh, Dance Mag announced its 2020 Dance Magazine Awards honorees. Uh, This year, in light of the deep reflections on racial equity across the country inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, Dance Magazine chose to honor an outstanding group of all-Black artists, including Carlos Acosta, Debbie Allen, Camille A. Brown, Lorianne Gibson, and Alonzo King. And that'll be a digital ceremony this December. Uh, Evelyn Cisneros Legate has been appointed director of Ballet West's official school. The retired ballerina was a star at San Francisco Ballet, which she joined during the Lou Christensen era, and holds the distinction of being the first Mexican-American principal dancer in the United States. Um, After recently returning to the ABC fold as a judge on Dancing with the Stars, Derek Huff signed a major deal with ABC Entertainment. Huff is set to host and develop a range of entertainment projects with the broadcaster, making him the latest member of the DWTS family to strike a deal with ABC. Host Tyra Banks struck a deal of her own just last month. American Ballet Theater announced a slate of digital premieres for its fall season set to debut during the company's 80th anniversary fall gala on November 18th. Former core member Gemma Bond creates her second work for the company, while Christopher Rudd, Daryl Grand Moultrie, and Pam Tanowitz are all contributing to the repertory for the first time. Personally, really excited and intrigued that Tanowitz is making a solo for soon-to-be-retired star David Halberg. Mm, big news. I also love that the press release said they're creating these works in four or five week ballet bubble residencies because doesn't the ballet bubble sound like a lovely place to be right now? It's like light pink and perfect. <laughs> I just I just like to live in a ballet bubble for a while. Mm. Anyway. Similarly, in the ballet bubble, uh, Disney Plus will officially stream On Point, a new docuseries following students at the School of American Ballet this winter. Details about On Point remain murky, other than the guarantee of six episodes following a year in the life of a group of SAB students. And I heard it's really great from an SAB parent that I met while waiting to buy a water bottle at Lincoln Center last year. Ooh, on the street reporting. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That same press release said that Disney Plus would broadcast a Lincoln Center performance of the Nutcracker, which I'm assuming means the New York City Ballet Nutcracker. I don't know what other Nutcracker is happening at Lincoln Center. So maybe more to look forward to. This is investigative reporting. We are on it today. Uh, And our last bit of news, New York City Center announced programming for its encore season, notably including revivals of The Life with choreography by Camille A. Brown and The Tap Dance Kid, the musical that made Savian Glover a star with choreography by Jared Grimes. That was a shocking amount of happy news in a headline roundup. I, I almost don't know how to process it. It's a little weird. Did Mars come out of retrograde? What's no, going on? No, it did not. No, and Mercury there. goes into retrograde soon, guys, so buckle up. Oh, dear. 
Um, yeah, well, coming back down to earth in our next segment, um, we'd like to talk for a moment about a passionate supporter of the arts that so many people are going to miss so deeply. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice who died on Friday of complications of metastatic pancreatic cancer. And so much has been said already about just how extraordinary RBG was. I mean, only the second woman ever to be appointed to the Supreme Court. She championed race and gender equality. She became in particular a women's rights hero. In recent years, she became essentially a pop icon, the notorious RBG. And a lot of people now have already moved on to the bitter political fight surrounding the Supreme Court seat that she's left vacant. But we wanted to just take some time to talk about the fact that Justice Ginsburg was as zealous about the performing arts as she was about the law. And I don't want it to seem like we're sort of stretching here to like stake our own claim to RBG. I mean, theater and especially opera, she wasn't just peripherally involved in them. She was a thoroughly engaged and faithful patron for her whole life. So as Margaret mentioned, there are obviously so many reasons to love and appreciate Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but this is one of those deeply human and personal connections to a public figure that are pretty rare, I think. Um, RBG was famously a huge fan of the arts, constantly attending you know, musicals, plays, and mostly operas. She was such a huge fan of the opera that she even appeared in a performance of the Washington National Opera as the daughter of the regiment. And Deborah Rudder, the Kennedy Center's president, said that she was basically a fangirl when it came to the opera stars, even saying here she was a superstar and she approached each of the singers as though they were the superstars, which was so beautiful. Well, and I love um, in there were further interviews and commentary coming from opera directors and performers, and they would talk about how she would, it wasn't just like, oh, this is really good. She would engage with the text of the work and with the music of the work and had really informed opinions about it and liked learning about it and having discourse about it. And that it's just adds a layer of three-dimensionality to someone who has become such a larger-than-life figure in this massively impactful life and career that she's had. There's an anecdote about her going to see the play What the Constitution Means to Me on Broadway and then requesting a copy of the script, which she then uh, sent back to the writer and performer uh, with a couple of notes as well as an annotated copy of one of the arguments that was uh, referenced in it. It's just, it's incredible. <laughs> it's perfect. Um, and I love too that it was clearly deeply meaningful to her, but she also had a sense of humor about the whole thing. I mean, in addition to that story about her having the speaking role in La Fille du Regiment, there's another story that's been kind of making the rounds in in artsy circles about she was in a special presentation of Henry VI. I think it was for the Shakespeare Theater Company's Lawyers Committee. But she specifically asked to play the role that gets to say the famous line, first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers, <laughs> which is just, I mean, that's amazing. I think she then ad-libbed after that, like, next the reporters. <laughs> it's sad to think that she was unable to see any live theater during the final months of her life. I mean, a lot of people have been saying, may her memory be a revolution, which we'd like to echo. But may we also all be inspired by her example, as we fight the battles, legal and otherwise, that are required to save this art that we love so much. Um, which actually, that's a good segue into our next segment, where we want to talk more about what those battles are and how they need to be fought right now. So a new study released last week by arts management consultants, TRG Arts, revealed that only 23% of US-based arts and culture organizations actually plan to return to an in-person performance model by the end of this calendar year. 
And it's not that that number is all that surprising, really. Part of me was like, who are who are the 23%? I haven't heard of any. <laughs> um, but it is notable that when they were asked about their plans back in June, 61% of those same organizations said they'd be back on stage by the end of 2020. So yes, the outlook is grim. Um, and that's partly because while a lot of these companies are doing digital events to replace their, you know, in real life shows, that model still isn't financially viable for almost anybody. I think it gets even more telling when you look further in the report to the breakdown by specific art form. Uh, if you look at the dance specific numbers, uh, in June, it was 83% anticipate returning to stages by the end of 2020. Then July, 67%. September, 27%, which I think is mirrored by the news that we've been getting and the press releases that we've been getting and the general sense that we currently have that we are in this for the long haul. I think it's also maybe a little scary to look at the breakdown of who's planning to go to paid digital content as part of their plan. More than 50% of the overall arts organizations that were surveyed have no plans for that, which is harrowing. So I think that as we're looking at kind of a plan moving forward for live performance, one of the most important things that we can look at is how the government is able to assist the performing arts industry. So there's been a bill introduced to provide $10 billion to the live performance venues across the country called Aptly Save Our Stages, or SOS. Um, and just this past Friday, Senator Chuck Schumer from New York took to Times Square to advocate for Save Our Stages and make some COVID-19 slash Broadway puns that put even us dance media editors to shame. Oh, I haven't heard those. Oh, dear. Oh, gosh. Lots and lots of embedded Broadway titles. It ends with, we're fighting to make sure New York City and Broadway get a Lion King's share of federal relief. Oh, bless his heart. The study is important, but we basically wanted to highlight it as a way to plug the Save Our Stages Act, which needs everybody's support. Um, please, we will again link to this in our episode description, but at saveourstages.com, you'll find a template letter that you can send to your congressional representatives. Please go. Please send it. Um, let's get this passed. It is essential. And also, friendly reminder, double check your voter registration status, guys. Uh, it was just While National Voter Registration Day this week. Get on that. So in our next segment, we're going to get into another of those topics that you can file under something important to figure out while we're waiting for everything to reopen. Um, dance Magazine ran a story this week about company class at mixed repertory dance companies. And many of these groups are performing works that go well outside of the ballet world, increasingly outside of the Western dance world entirely. But at the vast majority of them, dancers are still taking ballet classes before rehearsals and shows, which seems like a pretty major disconnect. So why are these companies still relying on ballet class? And besides the fact that this practice can leave dancers ill-prepared for what they're being asked to do on stage, why else is centering ballet problematic? So shout out to Zachary Woodenberg, the author of this story. Just the best. Um... Zach basically was looking at this from the perspective of, okay, if you're in a company where you are doing works by Ohad Naharan, if you're doing Mats Eck, if you're doing all these different, very demanding, in very different ways uh, works, why are you starting your day with plies and tondus? Now, of course, there is the argument to be made that ballet prepares the whole body in a way that not all training systems do. You know, it gets turns, it gets jumps, it starts small and gets bigger. Um, it also has a level of rigor that is really useful for dancers. 
But as some of the sources point out, whenever your training is homogenous, that oftentimes leads to the performances that you see on stage seeming stylistically homogenous, even when you're dealing with very disparate choreographers. So is there an easy switch one for one? It doesn't seem like it. So how do you make dancers' training and the way that they prepare for their days, how do you make it so that it equips them in a way that prepares them to be able to do these wildly stylistically disparate things? Yeah, I think that this a lot of this conversation kind of centers around that age-old and hyper-Western adage that ballet is the foundation for everything. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I was taught that ballet was like the first and most important dance form and all other dance forms stemmed from it, which is historically not true. And it also stems from that idea that company ballet class is this tradition that we shouldn't break from. But then it comes to what tradition? The white Western tradition that doesn't apply to everyone and shouldn't be one that we're scared of breaking from at this day and age. I think one of the most interesting points in this article, I thought, was that ballet is this living, malleable form that we should consider changing to kind of tailor to what a company needs. We don't have to keep company ballet class structured the same that it is or have it feel the same way that it has for so long. A lot of companies are now tailoring their company classes to the specific choreography their dancers will be encountering that season or introducing contemporary classes a few days a week. I think that there's a lot of different approaches to this, and I think it's a really interesting conversation. What I think gets fun and interesting and almost sticky about the idea of like, let's have contemporary technique class instead, it's, well, what does that mean? Contemporary technique means so many things because part of the definition of it is that it's a departure. It isn't codified in and of itself, even though particular practitioners have developed their own methods. Um, And I think maybe one of my favorite points in this entire story was uh, Emily Molnar, who is the incoming artistic director at Netherlands Dance Theater, coming from Ballet BC, essentially said, look, technique is about putting tools in an artist's toolbox so that they can then engage with these different creators. And I mean, couldn't have said it better. That's the whole point. So how can companies better support that? Yeah. And I did think it was interesting, too, that he talked to some dance physiologists and physical therapists and other science-based practitioners who are approaching this from a scientific perspective. Because, I mean, that sense of class as a toolbox, this is bringing that down to the nuts and bolts there, kind of mixing a metaphor. But looking at what the choreographer's work demands of the body specifically in a mechanical sense, and then preparing customized regimens for dancers to offset those demands, which I thought was fascinating. It's very much the athlete's approach to preparing for an event. Well, and that's, and that's been kind of something they've been developing and having in place at Atlanta Ballet for a few seasons now. And it's, I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. It's like, yeah, let's look at what this is demanding that your ballet technique isn't necessarily setting you up for and make sure that you are preparing your body adequately. Because not only is that going to make the performance better, it's also going to reduce injuries. Yep, absolutely. So many complicated questions raised by this issue, but it's good that we're now beginning to engage with all of them thoughtfully as opposed to just saying, nope, ballet is our default. So now we have the next installment in our voice memo series, and this week our message is from Dr. Melissa Blanco-Borelli, who is a professor at the University of Maryland and at Royal Holloway University of London, and she's the president of the Dance Studies Association. Um, DSA is a group of dance scholars and educators working to bring the field of dance into the 21st century, and an important part of that work has been pushing for greater diversity, equity, and inclusion in and around dance academia. And the organization has compiled and created 
these invaluable anti-racist resources, including its recently issued departmental call to anti-racist action. Um, you'll hear more about all of that in Melissa's memo. You'll also hear about her TikTok obsession, which, you know, same. Here she is. Hi there, Dance Edit listeners. My name's Melissa Blanco Borelli, and I'm the current president of the Dance Studies Association. The Dance Studies Association is an international organization of dance scholars, educators, and artists who aim to strengthen the visibility and increase the reach of dance as an embodied practice, creative endeavor, and intellectual discipline. I think everyone has an embodied practice, and no one practice or technique should be valued over another, right? So as scholars, educators, and artists, we must commit to using dance and its mode of expression as a frame to help unpack the processes of racism and to eventually undo them. So as president of DSA, I think my job is to help facilitate and support the anti-racist agendas developed by our board for the organization and to move the organization into a more equitable and international-facing direction. Um, most recently, we have issued a departmental call to anti-racist action, and this came about uh, from the bullet points that were included in our plan of action when we issued our Black Lives Matter solidarity statement. And our executive director, Lizzie Leopold, spoke with members of the Dismantling White Supremacy in Dance Studies Working Group, Takia Nora Mean, Naima McCarthy-Brown, and Crystal U. Davis. And they all worked together to come up with this anti-racist action uh, for departments. I think it's wonderful. And I know that it's generated a lot of attention and conversation and thinking. So hopefully action will follow. I know right now that the main concern for most dance departments is the health risk of keeping dance spaces open during the pandemic. And a lot of my colleagues are teaching online and even teaching dance classes online to maintain safe safety protocols. But I do think that there's always advocacy work to be done for dance. We've actually lowered our membership fees. So we changed our membership structure to pay what you can. Um, and then we also wanted to increase our international membership. So we created a, an economies of scale so that people can join depending on where, what part of the, uh, the world they are in and uh, what position or salary they're making. So hopefully will have positive effects. I think we did get a great number of new members, so that's something to be excited about and see how we can continue to increase our membership with this new, more equitable membership structure. Um, we have a Digital DSA initiative launching this weekend, September 26th and 27th, where, where we have a co-curated event with the Collegium for African Diasporic Dance, and it's the first part of a three-part series called Black Voices in Dance Studies. So we're really excited about that. CAD's curator, Shireen Dixon, has done an excellent job. If everything goes well and we can have face-to-face -face conferences, our next two conferences, October 2021 and then uh, October 2022, the themes are Galvanizing Dance Studies, Building Anti-Racist Praxis, Transformative Connections, and Movements of Radical Care and dance studies and activism in a global age. So again, as you can see, the themes of our conferences are trying to match up to our call to action and our overall 
um, social justice, anti-racist agenda, and its relationship to dance studies. Um, we have issued statements on the inviolability of movement as a human right in response to the U.S. immigration bans. We have a great resource list for anti-racist dance pedagogy. So if any dance teachers are trying to expand their syllabi, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can come to us and we have a resource list there. We have a great bibliography of dance scholarship from like the 1960s until now by black dance scholars. And then we um, also have that draft form letter for use by dance departments so that they can um, advocate for a broader economic, structural, and pedagogical changes in dance departments. So we're very ambitious in our scope, but we have a very committed board and membership. So I, for one, I'm super hopeful of the work we do and what changes we can bring. In terms of what's keeping me afloat and inspired these days, I've become a huge fan of TikTok. I think TikTok is a wonderful site for everyday practices of corporeal self-making. And I especially enjoy the Gen Z TikTokers because they're so inventive with the visual and physical things that they do in 15 seconds. They create their own little mini worlds. In fact, I've started to learn how to use it, and I'm, I'm trying to make myself use it on a weekly basis by posting a TikTok associated with the theme from my performance studies graduate seminar. There's another Instagram site called Ficheras, I believe, and it's basically an archive. They source all these famous Latin American showgirls and cabaretera photos, videos. It's wonderful. It's full of all these fabulous showgirl dancing. So that's what's keeping me busy and inspired. I want to reiterate uh, the role that dance has and how we must advocate for dance in all of its iterations, especially for all the different types of bodies that dance, right? Whether they're racialized or gendered or gender nonconforming or they're differently able. And then I, I think that it's important for the concept of dance to move away from the Euro-American modernist paradigm. So thank you so much for having me and uh, keep dancing. <laughs> thank you so much for that, Melissa. Um, we will include links to all of those great resources that she mentioned, including the information about the upcoming Digital DSA conference in the episode description. And please be sure to visit dancestudiesassociation.org just to keep up with all the work they're doing. I mean, whether you're a scholar or a performing artist or both or neither, whatever your connection is to dance, you will find something useful on that site. Okay. Thanks everyone for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news moving the dance world. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.